Acts 17, verse 16 to 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. This, what you see above, is not one of the idolatrous statues that Paul encountered on that fateful day in Athens. Uh, this is the famous Thinker by Auguste Rodin which was first conceived in the 19th century, late 19th century, now rests in Paris, France. You're probably familiar with this image, if not seen it yourself. It shows a larger-than-life male figure sitting 
on a rock with his chin resting on one hand and seemingly deep in thought. Rodin never revealed what his subject was thinking, though many asked. Maybe he he was contemplating the meaning of life. Maybe he was just wondering, where did my clothes go from last night? I can't remember where I left them. (laughs) Either way, he did comment, however, on how his subject thinks. He said, what makes my thinker think is that he thinks not only with his brain, with his distended nostrils, his compressed lips, with every muscle in his arm, his back, and his legs, with his clenched fist and his gripping toes. This is how the thinker thinks. What to you in your life is worthy of such intense thought that it would consume every part of you? Especially when we can just use Google to think other people's thoughts, <laughs> right? Find them out for us. Maybe, if you, th- if, you, if you really want to think hard, you might think about a good idea that might spark and further your career. Or maybe a way to sort of break through and communicate with a teenager or with your spouse. Over such things, we will give deep thought, and I hope also on that list, is reaching a friend, a neighbor, or co-worker for Jesus for the sake of their eternity. That is worth thinking hard. We've seen in Acts how, you know, prayer for healing, openness to the Holy Spirit, endurance for suffering, losing to gain eternal treasure, are all ways to respond not only to the love of God for us, but to display the uniqueness of Jesus to an onlooking world. These are ways people are responding to Jesus, but also ways the world is seeing, wow, there's something unique about these people, there's something unique about the God that they worship. So too is keeping our eyes open and thinking hard about just how to reach those who never really thought about Jesus because they already have a functional God who rules and reigns over their life. Thinking, just thinking, has fallen among really hard times among sort of Bible-believing Christians. Many of us, if you're a Christian, are, may have been accused of being a simpleton, small-minded, or worse, they don't even know what they believe or why they believe what they believe. And to be fair, I've heard Christians say things in my life like, honestly, it doesn't have to make sense. It's just a faith thing. Or, as, as one woman told me before I became a Christian, uh, don't think... Just believe. Almost paraphrasing in a twisted way Jesus. He said, don't fear, just believe. Don't think, just believe. Now to be certain, the power of of prayer moves mountains as we experienced personally, I hope you did yesterday, for all those who came to the prayer vigil. The Holy Spirit must be at work for a person to trust Christ and be renewed and regenerated. The simple good news about Jesus is what needs to be shared. And God uses non-brainiacs to share it. No doubt. But every individual who trusts Jesus must be convinced that he is a God worth worshiping, and that starts in the mind. God has chosen to use what we say to convince them. An incredible honor, but also a major responsibility. Ones that other religions, people of other religions, have have accepted. The majority of Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and still many Muslims, rigorously prepare 
with their minds to reason out what they believe and continue to reason. The Apostle Paul reasoned in the synagogue and in the marketplace every day, it says in verse 17. He did this. How did he reason? He first watched for idols, counterfeit gods, that captured people's love, their affection, and their worship. Then he deconstructed that reality. He showed people why it's not true, why it's not real. And then he reconstructed. It's that old phrase that you've got to tear something down to build it back up. And that's what Paul does. He, he watches, he deconstructs, and he reconstructs. And that's the pattern we're going to follow this morning. And we want to think about how we can share Jesus with someone who has no interest in him because they already have a functional God in their life. They already have someone or something or some goal they've given their heart to as their God. I want to plead with you this morning. Don't give up on people who don't yet see their need for God. This passage shows that the God may wish to use you to help them see their need for a better Savior. Let me just kind of start by praying. Father, help us think hard this morning. For the sake of those we wish to reach, but they already have a functional God that they've given their heart to in their life. There's a Dionysius or Damaris in our lives who need to hear the reason for a real and better God and who just might be ready to trust Jesus. So help us think hard this morning with our minds, (laughs) clenched toes, strained back and arms to reach such a person for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first, watch for idols. If you want to reach that kind of person for Christ, someone who is enthralled, has already embraced such a God, watch for an idol work in their life. We see three different times, verse 16, verse 22, verse 23, that Paul observes these counterfeit gods called idols. His spirit is provoked within him. That word translated provoke, it's a complex word that's a mixture of anger and sorrow. And that's a brilliant kind of word because it encapsulates what we feel when we see a friend embracing a false god. That's what we feel. We feel this combination of anger and sorrow. Angry because an idol acts like a god, yet sorrowful for a friend because we know it's not a real one. So an idol first acts like a god. Let me backtrack a little bit here. An idol is the number one thing, person, value, or activity in your life. Your heart is captured by it. It steals your thoughts when you're away from it. That, it's that around which you are willing to flex your schedule and priorities to be near to it again. You look at it and you say, honestly, I can't live without that. And our enemy, the devil, is so clever to use an idol to ensnare us because they are so rarely in and of themselves a bad thing. They are a good thing that we make into ultimate things. They are good made into God, if you will. So we don't think anything of them. We think they're just part of normal life, even though all our thoughts, all our heart, Our worship is directed towards them. Sex, for example. Sex is fantastic, all right? I highly approve of it. It's a gift from God. But if I make this good into a God, right, the thing that's going to consume all my time and attention and thought, that's when addiction ensues. That's when pornography comes about. That's when STDs pop up. And if you're married, a long trail of deceit. 
and usually a broken marriage that can't recover. Children, have them, love them. When you try to get meaning and self-worth, though, from their behavior, from their achievements, from the outcome of their adult life, what typically happens? One, if they see that, they crumble under the pressure that you put on and usually distance themselves. Parents usually become either prideful parasites. Look at my kid, look at my kid, look at my kid. Or utterly devastated because they don't want anyone to look at their kid. Absolutely ruins lives. There's also religious idolatry. Yes, becoming a good person or even a good Christian. When this good goal becomes God, inevitably people grow self-righteous, right? When they're successful, look what I've done. This is what I've given my heart to is becoming this good Christian. And they look down on everyone else. Or jealousy when they encounter someone who does it better than them. Which absolutely ruins their lives. All of these make promises like God. I'll fulfill you. I'll give your life meaning. I'll give you a sense of identity that you didn't have before. But unlike the God of the Bible, they never make good on their promises. And so in that way, an idol is unlike God. God delivers on fulfillment, meaning, identity. Fulfillment, Jesus says we will not only have life, but have life to the fullest, abundant life. Meaning, that there is a purpose for why we are living, to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. There's an identity we receive by worshiping this God as Christians, that we are a child in the Father's family. God always delivers on His promises, but idols disappoint and frustrate. What's interesting, only after giving you just enough fulfillment, just enough meaning, just enough identity that a person spends the rest of their life trying to recapture it. That's how an idol tricks us. Just enough fulfillment, just enough pleasure, just enough good so that people chase after it the rest of their lives trying to recapture that feeling, recapture that sense of belonging that they can't find in an idol. Paul doesn't ignore the idols. He identifies them, exposes them, deconstructs him. He doesn't always do this. Usually he gets right to the gospel message. Let me tell you about God. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about his death. Let me tell you about his resurrection. Why then is this different? Notice we don't see that here in this passage, do we? Because he's sharing with people who don't see their need for a savior. Usually Paul's sharing with Jewish people who are looking forward to a Messiah who have a Messiah at least in mind. Or he's often sharing with people who know that they're in need. People who are often poor, who are needy, who are spiritually desperate. And in those cases, he shares the gospel and gets right into it. But here he's sharing with people who don't see their need for a Savior. These Epicureans, these Stoics, these outright idolaters. Let me explain who they are for a minute. Epicureans, we heard Andy mention. They believed in Roman gods, but they saw them as pretty much distant and uninterested left then to themselves and seeing life as random, the best lived life is attaining maximum pleasure with minimum pain. Anybody relate to that? Maximum pleasure, minimum pain, that is the best life you can live because life is pretty random and they're locked into that philosophy of life. Stoics, on their hand, believe in God as this all-pervasive spirit and he actually dictates all of life. Life isn't random. Life is dictated by this all-pervasive spirit. So the best lived life is one that's dutiful, does one's duty, and courageously accepts one's fate. Whatever that might be, whatever job that might be, however many kids you might have, whatever that might be, they are locked into that life philosophy. And we have outright idolaters who don't have any issues 
with the gods they worship, Aphrodite, Athena, Artemis. And just in case they misworshipped one of them, they built altars and statues, quote, to an unknown god, which were actually quite common. The statue you hear about in our passage. They were quite common because people wanted to cover their bases. Just in case I worship the wrong god, we have an unknown god, so that one day when people go to their version of heaven, they can say, look, no, 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 I worshipped you, remember? That was the unknown god. That was you. In cases where a friend, neighbor, co-worker is already locked in to worship, locked into an idol, we can learn from Paul's strategy, which is to, to locate, then, boom, break down that idol, deconstruct it. And with God's help, the task isn't as overwhelming as it might seem. So let's get to work on it. First, secondly here, first we're going to identify the idol, see it for itself, and then we're going to deconstruct it. Listen to how Paul begins to, to take on the idols he doesn't shy away from it. Look at that in verse 24. The God who made the world, everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't he, he doesn't live in temples made by man? Nor is he served by human hands. That's what happened with idols, right? As though he needed anything. Since he himself gives all mankind life and breath. Again, down to verse 29. Being God's offspring, we ought to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. In other words, that was a lesser way of thinking. Paul very directly says, just going to be honest with you. I see that you're religious in every way. I'm complimenting you, but I'm also going to tell you, are you serious? Do you think gods are made by gold and silver and live in temples? And if you bring enough flowers to them and burn enough incense, these inanimate objects are going to take care of your life? So we can see where Paul is being slightly humorous, a little cheeky. And our sheer Christ with a friend doesn't see any need for him. We'd be wise to identify, deconstruct the person's idol, and I would suggest using questions and laughter. It's not often you get to hear laughter as a strategy in a sermon. We get to this morning, questions and laughter. Now you can see where Paul's being slightly humorous, as I just described, a little cheeky with his audience, but nowhere do we see questions. So let me just take a moment here as a brief tangent about how we read and apply the book of Acts. All right, so we're going to, just move to the side real quick and think about this whole book of Acts. And this is important. The book of Acts is a narrative. It's a history about the early church, albeit an inspired one written by Dr. Luke. Unlike Jesus' teaching or Paul's letters, it doesn't contain a list of commands outside of Jesus' final teaching, right? To be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now go, and God releases them, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So each bold act we've been examining in response to the gospel is one way the church can freely respond depending on the circumstances, depending on the people we're with. It would be weird to collect everything we've talked about so far and put it in like a daily checklist, right? So for example, you know, today I'm going to heal and share with someone. Or to, you know, tomorrow I'm going to find suffering and persecution and then endure it. Check. Right? These are ways we can respond depending on circumstances that we find ourselves in and people we find ourselves with. The book of Acts then might be thought of not as a to-do list or a manual, but as a divinely inspired field guide. Recently, a family friend let my son Mason borrow this uh, field guide to bonefish. Mason has recently taken up bonefishing, catching, catching bonefish by, by fly fishing. And it's chock full of wisdom about catching these creatures. Helps you think like a bonefish. You can identify 
the movements in low tide versus high tide. It suggests lures or flies depending on the type of waves or the, the strength of wind. Sharing a few stories along the way is the idea. As such, it doesn't offer a formula or set-by-set instructions. It just is chock full of tried and true wisdom. Whereas Paul's letters and much of Jesus' teaching read like, in some ways, an instruction manual, or you could say that. The wisdom contained in the stories of the early church is like a field guide for fishing for men and women to make disciples. As Jesus said to his disciples, I want you to fish for men. Here are some ways you can do that. Here's some wisdom, depending on the conditions, depending on on which way the wind is blowing, depending on the people you're with, here's how you can fish for them. So what that means is, just because Paul is confronting people and saying, hey, by the way, you are ignorant about your idols, that we should do likewise. That's probably unwise, given the people and circumstances we're around today. It's different, right? Verse 21. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. In other words, people sat around and they were open to new ideas and new thoughts. And people saying, I think your way is wrong. People don't do that today. Except for certain hipsters and baristas and coffee shops, all right? Maybe. But for the most part, people don't sit around talking about ideas and confront you with your bad one. So I would suggest a way that you can start identifying and deconstruct someone's idol. First, a well-placed question. Questions are effective for two reasons. One, we want our friend to notice the idol themselves. People rarely respond well to, hey, do you know that you worship something that's robbing you of joy and destroying you little by little? People don't like to hear that, understandably. They might be willing, though, to see it for themselves. And questions help with that. Also, questions help because idols might go deeper than we observe. Money is a good example of this, all right? We might say a person's idol is money. Man, they love money. They have this house. All they think about is money. But it actually might be the security that money provides them. It might be the social status that money gives them. It might be they just overlove beauty, and so they use money to get more beautiful things and go to more beautiful places, and that is what they worship. And so questions help get to the heart of what a person really loves and what they really worship in their life. So I would suggest questions can help you, all right, when you're talking with a person enthralled by an idol. Here are six you can ask someone as you develop a relationship with them. Number one, what keeps you up at night? A great question you can ask someone. What keeps you up at night? And you start to hear what they really care about, what really matters to them. Here's another one. Tell me about that blank. Might be a book they're reading. It might be a place you often see them at, right, grabbing a cup of coffee or at the movie theaters. Or might be one I like, I've heard used recently, is a tattoo. Right? Tell me about that tattoo. Tattoos are windows into people's lives. Use what you can to find out what is important to that person. Number three, what really ticks you off? Great question to ask someone who you developed a relationship with. Because you find out the thing that makes them most mad when they're deprived of it. Number four, this is kind of a fun one. What's Jim's happy place? <laughs> All right, kind of a silly, if you're with a fun-loving person, what is that thing that people run to for comfort in their life? Number five, what's on your wish list? What's something you want but don't have? Here's another one. Number six, what does your mind wander to when you're driving in your car? These are, are kind of most of my thing, natural questions you can ask someone that starts to get at what really matters most to them. And what I would encourage you, in my experience, what I found most effective is just asking the question, 
and doing nothing else, leaving it to the other person. Because as they see the love of Christ in you combined with the absurdity of what keeps them up at night, what makes them mad, what they wish for, what they think about so frequently, they'll occasionally identify it themselves as, man, this is actually kind of absurd that I care about this so much, that it keeps me up at night, that I wish and that I long for this, I think about this when I'm in the car. It's kind of ridiculous. And they might even start to laugh at it. And here's the second thing you can do to sort of deconstruct someone's idol, help them with this, is help them laugh about the idol. Laughter. Make it your aim to laugh at idols. That's what we see Paul start to do here. Guys, this is ridiculous. Gold, silver, you think that's going to make a difference in your life? You think that's a real God? People will start to, if you can laugh at the absurdity that security can be bought, that a physical act like sex is what you were born to do, a specific person, all of whom have flaws, can really fulfill your life or complete you, in Jerry Maguire's words. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the prophet there has been offering prophecy after prophecy for four or five chapters, and then more prophecies for another 21 chapters. But there's this interesting moment, smack dab in the middle of these prophecies by Isaiah, where he goes on a bit of a tangent, in which he basically says, let's stop and think about how absurd idolatry really is. Let's just think about it. He, he points out different good and useful things that people make in their jobs, and then they worship them. Isaiah 44, 14 through 20. Let's read this together. The woodcarver cuts down cedars. He's, he selects the cypress and the oak. He plants the cedar in the forest to be nourished by the rain. And after his care, he uses part of the wood to make a fire to warm himself, to bake his bread. All good stuff, right? You have a great job. This guy's planting cedar trees. He's nourished. He's a, he's, a, he's a tree hugger. He loves the earth. He's using some of those trees to nourish himself, make a fire, stay warm. Then, yes, it's true, he takes the rest of it and makes himself a god for people to worship. He makes an idol and bows down and praises it. He burns part of the tree to roast his meat to keep himself warm. Then he takes what's left and makes his god, a carved idol. He falls down in front of it worshiping and praying to it. Rescue me, he says. You are my God. Such stupidity and ignorance. Exclamation point. Their eyes are closed. They cannot see like we, like we heard in that song. Their minds are shut. They cannot think. The person who made the idol never stops to reflect. Why? It's just a block of wood. I burn half of it for heat and use it to bake my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest of it be a God? Should I bow down and worship a chunk of wood? The poor deluded fool feeds on ashes. He has trusted something that can give him no help at all, yet he cannot bring himself to ask, is this thing, this idol that I'm holding in my hand, a lie? And that's where I think God wants to use us to bring them to ask that question. And a lot of times it's with laughter. As, as Christian author and smart guy Osgina says in his book, Fool's Talk, humor punctures a seemingly ironclad world. It punctures it so that the ultimate can seem to trump the immediate. It's like poking a hole in someone's atmosphere so they can see what's true and what's real shining through. Why? Because you can laugh at the absurd. Humor helps people see what we saying earlier, that every other God is an idol who can't see, who can't hear, who can't actually do anything to save you or rescue you in your life. One of the best ways to laugh with a friend is to first laugh at yourself. Laugh at the absurdity of your own potential idols or real idols in your life. I wrote down this week two of my potential idols. 
especially after I read Isaiah 44. Two of which, potential idols for me, are my children and sports, specifically basketball. Think, I started to think about it. I started to write it out like the prophet Isaiah did, and how ridiculous it is that I would treat these things God to my life. That would give my heart, find my identity, find my meaning in them. For instance, Katie and I kissed one day, and out popped a child. All right? We kissed another day, and out came another child. These children, these babies, they eat, sleep, and poop. And they grow up to rebel against you. And sometimes do occasionally good things that make you proud. Now, while I try to gain life, meaning, happiness from those slimy seven pounds that come out of Katie? Really? Well, will I try to be, will I be happy only if they prosper and succeed? Is that going to define me completely? It's absurd when you stop to think about it. A Canadian, I love him, invented a game where you throw a ball into a peach basket just to pass the time and to keep youth out of the winter cold. Will I get ticked off by how few times that ball goes into that basket? Yes, I sometimes do. As my Sunrise teammates can attest from our Wednesday night corporate league game, uh, the times were very few that that ball made it into that basket. And they saw me occasionally get red in the face. Upset. It's absurd that I would care that much about something like that. Yet these are the things we often get our hearts to. What we want to do, guys, is when we talk with someone, ask them questions, help them see for themselves that this is absurd, what they worship, what they give their heart to, what they find meaning from. You do that by asking questions. And you do that by laughing, first laughing at yourself. Thirdly, we want to reconstruct for them a better reality, a better Savior than the one that they rely on now. One of the ways we do this, I changed this in the outline a little bit, sorry, is with their prophets, not ours. Their prophets, not ours. Paul does something interesting in verse 28 in trying to kind of reconstruct for these people in Athens a better reality and a better Savior and show that to them. He doesn't quote Scripture, does he? He doesn't go to the Old Testament. He doesn't even quote Jesus. He offers truth from Scripture, principles from Scripture, but spoken by two poets that the audience knows and respects. The 6th century B.C. Cretan poet named Epimenides, who said, in him we live and move and have our being. This man didn't fear God. This man didn't love Jesus. And yet Paul used this truth to impact these people's hearts. And also the 3rd century B.C. poet Aratus, who said we are indeed his offspring. That's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes I think the best way we can help someone see a better reality, reconstruct a better reality, is using their prophets, not ours. I remember I used to use a, a line from a song, Not For You, by the popular 90s band Pearl Jam, to talk about sin being ingrained in all of us. They had this line that said, if you hate something, don't you do it too. Which I, I used to help people who actually liked Pearl Jam. I know there's very few of you now anymore. That's okay. To see to relate with and say, yeah, yeah, I, I know that line. I say, that's what the Bible says to talk about sin, that one of the evidences we have that we are in need of a Savior and we have sin in our lives is the very thing we hate to do is the very thing we do. Use their prophets, not ours. If it's a teenage or preteen girl, use Taylor Swift. She might be the best person. Her lyrics, like to her song, Change. And that song, she, she talks about that there's 
something about life tells her that change is possible, even though she can't quite identify it, even while she keeps singing hallelujah in the chorus. It's like, it's right there. Change is possible, Taylor. You're writing about it in your song. And you can relate to that depending on your audience. If it's a businessman, it might be a writer from The Economist like Ryan Event. And the list goes on and on and on. Use things they can relate to. Their profits, not ours. It's not always helpful when we do well to know our Bibles. But when we know our Bibles, we can more swiftly connect our profits to theirs to help them reconstruct a better reality and a better Savior. Finally, the resurrection of Jesus. Help them reconstruct a better reality with the resurrection of Jesus. Paul insists the main takeaway of anyone who is worshiping a counterfeit God that's been exposed now, they need to know that Jesus has risen from the dead. Verse 18, we see that the summary of his preaching in Athens is this. He was preaching Jesus and what? The resurrection. His closing line, his finishing line in the marketplace, verse 31. God has fixed a day. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance by raising that man from the dead. Now, how do you do this practically? Do you, do you launch on this defense of why Jesus rose from the dead? Probably not. Not initially. We, we live in an age of images and sound bites. So going on a long defense of Jesus, you know, this man in 30 AD may not be the best place to start. But maybe say something like, hey, don't be an atheist because of the resurrection. Put a thought in their mind like that. Don't turn away from Christianity because of the resurrection. That's the worst reason you can turn away. The resurrection is the most historically plausible and most readily evidenced miracle. Say something like that. Stoke their curiosity. Help them see that you might want to, maybe you might not believe in Jesus for other reasons, but don't do it because of the resurrection. And leave it there. Fill in the details later about the empty tomb, the dead body that was sought out but unfurnished, the 500 witnesses to the resurrection, the willing martyrdom of 11 out of 12 apostles, and the birth and spread of the church. Leave that for later. In fact, I actually preached a sermon Easter 2013 called Don't Be an Atheist Because of the Resurrection. Use that if you want for help to fill in some of those details. Maybe challenge them. If Jesus did physically rise from death, isn't he the God most worthy of your love, your affection, and your worship? Isn't he the reality worth reconstructing your life around? I think so. As I have a friend on island who told me five years ago that he was not, quote, interested in organized religion. His idol is living for pleasure. But every year he gets older, he sees the diminishing returns of that idol, that false god. I know because I started to ask some well-placed questions about what occupies his thoughts and his emotions and also about his tattoos. We've laughed about the absurdity of some of those things which we drift into caring about that are really kind of absurd. We talk about old songs by artists that he likes and the truth and meaning contained in them. And I'm slowly starting to share with him why Jesus is so different and the only God worth reconstructing your life around. I hope you join me. Let's be praying for each other along the way. Let's pray. God, I do pray for my friends here who I know earnestly want for friends, neighbors, coworkers to trust Jesus. As we saw this morning, a lot of times people can't see their need for a Savior because they're already worshiping, they already love, they've already given their heart to a false god, to an idol, like we sang in that song. 
And a lot of times, Lord, you just want to use us with just a well-placed question to get to know what they really care about and maybe what they've given their heart to. With just a sense of humble laughter, both at ourselves and the absurdity of our own idols or our own potential idols in our life. And through that, God, you can break down walls. God, help us. Help us be your ambassadors for the gospel. Thank you for this unique way that Paul shares this this morning. We pray that we put it into practice with our friends, neighbors, and coworkers, even this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.